was reading the other day where um, the statistics uh, seem to indicate by so-called experts that 60% of churches across America average less than 100 in attendance. 60%. The same statistic also seems to indicate, as they do, as a fact, that a little less than 2% of churches average 1,000 more in worship attendance. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's, a, that's a sort of an awakening statistic to us because I think some of us have a tendency to believe that there are more larger churches than that in America. And some of us are surprised that the majority of the churches that we pass every day going to and from work or where we recreate or where we shop or where we go to school, actually 60% of those churches average less than 100 in attendance on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis. That is That is astronomical to me. And as I thought about that for a minute, I thought about the pressure that is on many pastors today in order to grow their church. I don't know if you know it or not, but pastors are quitting at an astronomical level today across the nation. So much so that there is a void in many churches today. They just can't find enough capable and experienced pastors. I've been in ministry for over 30 years, and I can tell you that many, if not most, of the colleagues that I started with in in college and in seminary are no longer in ministry. The pressure is astronomical. The pressure is huge on the pastors. And the pressure primarily comes from the congregations because most of those who sit in the pews of our churches today, or in our case the seats, want their church to grow. They want it to grow numerically and they want it to grow spiritually. And they're putting a lot of the, the, if not the blame or the pressure or making the pastor the target as to the reasons why it's not going or maybe looking to him to be the catalytic person that would automatically result in spiritual and numerical growth in the church. And many of the guys are feeling that pressure. I know that because across the nation today, every year, there are thousands upon thousands of men and women who attend seminars across the country so that they can learn the secrets to grow their church. And they're going to these conferences or they're emulating certain certain pastors across the nation who have grown large congregations and they'll go to these seminars and they'll give them 10, 20, 40, 50, or 100 things to do that they can take back to their church and if they'll do these things, their church will grow. And many of those guys go back to their home church and they implement that strategy only to be disappointed because they have somehow in their own minds, maybe they have missed something because their church has not grown to the level of the person that they heard at the conference who said, I did these things and my church grew. I think there are many churches today where the pastors themselves are feeling the pressure. The pressure is not only coming from the pew or from from the seat, but it's also coming from within the pastor. Because no pastor wants to consider himself to be a failure. And there are many pastors today, and when you think about it, 60% of the churches run less than 100 in attendance. So therefore, we have a, a lot of small church pastors in America today. And these small church pastors are looking at themselves and evaluating themselves by the larger congregations, by the mega churches, by the, by the well-known pastors, and they see themselves as failures. And as a result of their hard effort, their, their, their heart 
preached messages and all of their every it, the church just hasn't grown and they grow discouraged and they grow disappointed and they get weary and they wear down and the pressures of the pew or the chair come from the congregation and the membership and as a result they just they make moral decisions that that cause catastrophic results in their lives that eventually disqualify them for ministry i'm convinced that many of the pastors they make moral decisions not because they want to make moral decisions in which they lose their ministry but they just can't quit they can't resign they can't vacate the pulpit that they've been called by God to do. So they make a, 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 a decision that results in, in the congregation demanding for their resignation. And so therefore they walk away having feel, felt feeling a little bit better because they didn't have to resign. You know, they did something that caused this failure. And so they walk away. I think I mentioned the other day that I talked to a pastor that's working for a, a uh, one of our software companies that we deal with here, and he was a former pastor that told me that a handful of people put pressure on him and caused him to resign. He's no longer in ministry, and now he's a called man on a telephone working with a church dealing with software issues. I can't think of a, a, a worse thing for a guy to do than to talk to angry people on a phone because their program can't work. I know we don't have any of those people in this church, but can you imagine what kind of person would on, on a day-to-day -day basis it would be their job to talk to frustrated, angry people who, who can't get their software to work and they're demanding that this person on the line fix it immediately. And he and I got to talking about that and he said it prepares him for, for maybe what God's going to do in his life in the future. <laughs> uh, welcome to pastoring. But there's an incredible pressure for churches to grow today. And there's incredible pressure in the hearts of pastors for their church to grow. And we come across a passage in Ephesians chapter 4, where God, through the divine penmanship of the Apostle Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us the best and the greatest growth plan for any and every church that ever existed and will ever exist. And yet I've been to all these seminars. I quit going to them because they all sound alike. I don't go to them anymore. I don't want to attend because they're going to try to tell us in an unbiblical way as to how to develop and how to grow a church. And our churches are looking for the world in which to tell us and to educate us on how to maneuver and how to develop our church. And there are many who are looking at business models as comparison to how their church is doing and using business models in order to develop and to grow their church. You cannot develop and grow a church spiritually with a business model. It's got to be a biblical model. And the best biblical model that I know of is here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 all the way through verse 16. And we have been talking about that now for several months on the power of one. And so I want to go to the text and I want us to look at the invitation that the Spirit of God gives through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul to us as the church as he did to Ephesus when this, when this writing and to whom this writing was written. It's a beautiful passage in which now he is concluding in this final verse an invitation for us to join God in this marvelous and beautiful thing called developing and growing the church. For it is all of us who must join and unite together with Jesus in order to develop and to grow the church. It's not one single man's calling. It is the calling of everyone that belongs to the body of Christ to unite efforts with Jesus in order to develop and to grow the church, not numerically, but spiritually. And I'm convinced if we grow spiritually, we will grow numerically. 
And churches who avoid the spiritual growth or the numerical growth or financial growth or the building growth eventually wind up a mile long and an inch deep. And as soon as the first catastrophic thing that happens in the fellowship, it falls. And everybody runs like cockroaches to the next and the biggest and the greatest church. I mean, it exists here in Wichita. People that run from church to church to church to church to church because they're the hottest they're the most talked about. They're the most dynamic. And so they, they just run to those things. And so here I want us to take a look at this incredible text. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 15, not true in your, in your outline. I, on, the, on the screen it says 11, but we're going to look at verse 15. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. Notice that. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds, notice it said, it builds itself up in love. It builds itself up in love. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul has been writing to the Ephesian church, and he's been admonishing them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And as a part of that calling, he says that they are to walk in a way of humility and gentleness and patience and love and unity. And then he describes how that unity is, has been formed together. He says that their unity is already an established reality. It's already a fact. And he gives seven qualifying factors that demonstrate or give evidence to their unity. You're already one in Christ. You have one body, one spirit, one hope, one love, one faith, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all. Seven systematic evidences of the unity that this church in Ephesus has had is the same one that we have today. And then he begins to then talk about the goal of this spiritual unity. What is the goal? The goal of a church becoming one, the power of one, the goal is that we grow up, is that we mature in Christ to look like him and to display his characters and his qualities in our individual life as well as the life of the church. That's the goal. For us then to exhibit these, this systematic list of evidences so that we might grow up the whole body of Christ. We've talked about that. And in order to make that happen, Christ is well aware of our incapability to do that on our own. And so because he wants the whole body to grow, we've identified already that he has endowed some of us with a calling, and he has equipped us with that calling with spiritual gifts to enable and to empower the church to grow itself up. And because of that gift called spiritual gifts that each and every one of us has, we then exercise those gifts, as we described last week, for the benefit or the good of the whole. The gifts and the calling are not to be displayed or to be benefited solely from the individual standpoint, but he has enabled us to have these spiritual gifts by his grace, undeserving. He gave us these spiritual gifts so that we could then use them for the benefit of the whole. So that as we use them for the benefit of the whole, as we described last week, the whole body grows. It's, a, it's what I want to call a, a, a spiritual investment or, or it's something that Christ has given us when he called us and he endowed us with spiritual gifts. It's a living trust, so to speak, in which he wants us to take what he has given to us and invest it in others, not in ourselves, but in others, so that through that investment, the whole body grows. And somebody said, well, what's in it for me? We ever heard it's better to give than to receive? Anybody buy that? Anybody really buy that? You really buy that? 
That goes against human nature. It goes against the world. And it goes, obviously, against our government's philosophy for, 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 for governing today. I mean, here he's saying it's much better to give than to receive. Well, how can you say that? You've not reached a level of spiritual maturity unless you have reached the level where you have finally understood that it's better to give than to receive. Immature Christians believe it's better to receive than to give. Only mature Christians can arrive to the point where it's better to give than to receive. But here he's saying it's better to give than to receive for the benefit of the whole. Why? Because as the whole grows, I grow. And so we've, we've identified that it's for the common good of the church. And he's inviting us now, sort of in this last sentence, to sort of culminate all that God is saying. And, and how is this going to happen? God does it through people. For some unknown reason to me, God has decided to use us human beings, little people like me and like you, in order to accomplish his sovereign and divine plan. We are the vessels and the instruments that God wants to use, and he's inviting us as members of the body of his church to join him so that the whole body can not only grow, but fulfill the intent and the purpose for which Christ established the church. It's an invitation to join him, to unite with him, because he has a goal for us to grow. And he has connected us to this body in order to facilitate and to enhance and to accept the invitation to grow the church together. And so he's inviting us in this text. So I'm going to take a look at it very quickly. I want us to look at these important principles of how we can join Christ by answering the invitation to join him. First of all, how do we unite to build the growing church? Number one, we need to exhibit complete dependency. We must exhibit as a body and individuals complete dependency on Christ. Now, don't miss these two very critical words as we begin this verse. Because if we're not careful, you can read over these and miss this very strategic point. Notice in the text, in verse 16, it says, from whom? I don't know about you, but I scratched my head and said, whom, who's the who that he's describing? Who's the subject of this verse? Well, in order for us to understand who the subject of the verse is, we have to go back to the previous verse. The last two words in that verse are the words in Christ. Christ is the subject matter of both verse 15 and verse 16. And while Christ is not called by name here, it is referencing the subject matter Christ in verse 15 and is helping us understand that Christ is the one in whom we are completely dependent. We are completely dependent upon Christ. The Apostle Paul, through inspiration of the Spirit, has been constantly hammering this point. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, for not a result of works, so that no one could boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who saved us? Who's responsible for our salvation? Not us. Christ. Christ is responsible for our salvation. Our, we are completely and totally dependent on him for salvation. We bring nothing to the equation. We can bring nothing to the table. There is no work that we can perform, not, nothing that we can give that can merit, earn, and deserve our salvation. For it is by grace through faith and that it is not of yourselves. 
We can't grow the church in and of ourselves. Salvation is a free gift, so is church growth. Notice he says then in Ephesians 5.25, beautiful passage about husbands and wives and how they should treat each other, but notice what it says as it connects how husbands and wives relate to each other and how Christ relates to his bride, the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How are we husbands to love our wives? As Christ loved the church, what does that mean? You've got to die for your wife. Die to your knees and put her knees first. Christ is willing to die for us. We are his bride. But notice what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice that he might sanctify her. Who's doing the sanctification here? Who's doing the, the, the sanct- sanctifying work? Who's cleaning us up? Who? Christ. It says that he might sanctify her. Whose job is, is it, is it to, to, to make us righteous and to make us holy, to make us worthy, and to make us clean? It's Christ's responsibility. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that, notice, he might present the church to himself. What's he doing? He's wanting us to be presentable to him. Well, who's doing the cleaning up so that we're presentable? Jesus. We're standing on his righteousness, not our righteousness. Because our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. And so the sanctifying work that God is doing through Christ and the power of the Spirit and through the Word is a sanctifying work that He is doing in us. You can't sanctify yourself. He has to do that. And Paul is constantly referencing the fact that we are dependent not only for salvation and sanctification, but we're also dependent upon Christ even to grow the church. We cannot grow the church. I've been a Baptist a long time, and I've been a Southern Baptist for a long time. And we have always looked to Nashville. For some of you who are not long-term Southern Baptists, Nashville is where the Sunday school board used to be, and now it's Lifeway. And we expected Lifeway to give us a program. And we looked to Lifeway to give us the latest and greatest program so that we could come and we could implement in our church. And that at implementation, man, it would grow our church. And we were promised, you'll buy this program for us, it'll grow your church. If you buy this book and follow its principles, you'll grow the church. You and I can't grow the church. Only Christ can grow the church, and we are completely and totally dependent upon him. How are all these baptisms happening lately? Is it through some program? No. If you take a look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, where the Spirit of God fell on, on, on that first church, how did they grow? I mean, in Acts chapter 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. After the Holy Spirit came down, they went out, and 2,000 were converted in, in, in one evangelistic campaign. Well, who was writing the books? What seminars did they go to? You want to tell? I mean, who, who was doing that? There had been no church up to then. They didn't know anything about any books or any seminars. Later in Acts chapter 4, you read that the church came together and more people got saved. We've been studying the book of Acts over and over and over again on Sunday nights up there in that that little small room up there, about 60 or 70 of us up there studying. We're in chapter 14, I believe it is, this uh, this evening. And if you don't come to church tonight, you don't love Jesus because he doesn't care about the Super Bowl. But anyway, (laughs) if I got to be here, you got to be here, okay? Anyway. I think I'm coming out with a cough. I'm going, Brother Gail, I can't make it tonight. But anyway, um, <laughs> over and over and over again, the church is growing because the Spirit of God is present. The people are united in prayer and evangelism, and, and it's just it's a spontaneous thing. It's not a program. 
Our dependence needs to be on Christ, Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's not about some financial campaign. It's not about some program. It's not about some evangelistic thrust. It's not about concerts or all those things that we did in the past that we thought that grew our church. Only Jesus can grow his church. And we need to depend on him and not in and of ourselves. And once our dependence is totally on him and completely in him, to mature us individually and to mature us corporately. Notice he said we must then execute as a team unit. Because you see, there's a flip side to that coin. Not only is it the head who is Christ, the church, who grows his church, but on the other side there's a tail on that coin, and the tail is us. God in his sovereign plan has decided to use us to help develop and help mature and help facilitate the growth that only he can bring. Notice it says the whole church. What part of the church does God want to use in order to grow his church? The whole church. That means you. You're an integral, vital part of the body of Christ, and without you utilizing the spiritual giftedness that God has given you, the church will not grow. He needs the whole church to be united to come together so that the church will grow. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says in verse 11 and 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? To equip who? The saints. Who are the saints? Who are the saints? Turn to your neighbor and say, you don't look like a saint to me. Be careful, husbands and wives. How'd you like to go introduce yourself at lunch today and say, hey, I'm St. Charles, nice to meet you. They're going to say, where's that halo, man? I don't see no halo on your head. Who is it the one who's supposed to carry out the ministry of the church? The saints. The saints. In Ephesians 4, 16. For whom the whole body, notice what it said, is joined and held together by every joint. We are held together, tightly united. Christ places us in the body. You look at your body parts. God gave you this finger and that finger and that finger. He put it together. We are joined together. We are grafted together. Every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working, when each part is working, It's not my job to grow this church. Six and a half years ago, if you were looking to me to grow this church, you're disappointed already. You can't grow a church by a personality. You can't grow a church through a program. You can't grow a church any other method, any other means, except when the whole body comes together and together united, we then move and we work side by side, hand in hand, utilizing the spiritual giftedness that God has given us, empowered by the Spirit, working together. Peyton Manning, there's a lot of discussion about him. Who's the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks? Anybody know his name? Anybody not know who it is? How many have already heard of Manning? You know, man, more people hear about him now. And why is everybody, I mean, it's like all the commenters, oh, I want Denver to win today because I want Peyton Manning to win. And I think, well, what if you were the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks? Wouldn't you be a little disappointed? Everybody's talking about Peyton Manning. It's like, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, he's a pretty good quarterback. But everybody's talking about, let's, let's talk about Peyton Manning, for example. Can he win the Super Bowl today by himself? If they lose, it is all his fault. 
Yes. Whoa. I know what kind of church member that is. Yeah. Blame the pastor. It ain't my fault. It's the pastor's fault. I did everything I was supposed to do. Really? It takes a team. It's going to take a team. What's, what's the sinner's name that gives the ball to Peyton Manning? Anybody know his name? Huh? My case in point. Peyton Manning, if he doesn't get the ball, he can't throw the ball, and he can't run the ball, and they can't win the game. Is the center an obscure guy who's unimportant? No, he's incredibly important. My nephew who played for Rice is probably the number one college kicker in, in, in America right now. And uh, he's got all kinds of accolades and will probably be selected as a pro football player here pretty soon. And there's about four or five other teams that are looking at him. And, and Chris and I got to talking and I said, you know what? You wouldn't be able to kick those field goals the way you are without somebody holding the ball. Because if you don't have a proper guy there who knows exactly how to hold the ball at just the right time in just the right way so that he can kick it, it's not going to be a field goal. It takes a team to win a Super Bowl. And it doesn't rise or fall on one person. Now, granted, Peyton Manning is a great guy. He's a serious ball player. He's a fine man. And he is undoubtedly one of the main reasons why they have accomplished and achieved what they are and why they're there. But he can't do it on his own. No one person can do it on their own other than Christ as the body unites everybody fulfilling their role and their function. It's the whole body. And we must execute as a team. Number three, we must also engage for mutual benefit. We must engage for mutual benefit. It's interesting, it says here in the text in verse 16, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Your translation may have the word supply. Notice it says with which it is equipped or supplied. That word basically means contribution. So it means that everyone must make a contribution. Everyone, I'm going to say it again, must make a contribution. When that team shows up to play, everybody's got to make their contribution. Everybody has to play their role. Everybody has to play their function. The receiver has to receive. The quarterback has to throw. The running back has to run. The tackle has to tackle. The guard has to guard. The center has to make sure the ball's out on time. And nobody moves until the final hut or you get penalized, right? It's a team effort. But notice it says in the text in, verse four, in chapter 4, notice in verse 3 and 6, we've read that already, but just to recap it, it says that eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called by one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. We are held and jointly knit together as one team, as one unit. We are not a church of individual players. It's not my, my life group against their life group. Well, why didn't we have visitors? Why don't they send them to my life group? Why is it always to their life group? My question is always, why does it matter whose life group they go to? We're a team. Well, they're going to have more people than me. Okay. Does that mean you're not doing your job? We're together in this. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and 7, each is given for the manifestation of the Spirit. Notice it says, for what? 
for the common good. When I accept Christ, I'm connected to the body. And when I commit to the body that he connects me to, called Emmanuel Baptist Church, I contribute. And when I utilize the spiritual giftedness that God has given me under the power of the Holy Spirit, under his calling and his divine leadership, when I do what I'm supposed to do in the body, the whole team wins. We all win. And when we all win, I win. You win. He wins. She wins. We all win. How many Super Bowl rings are there? How many? One? For Peyton Manning? Huh? Every player that wins in the, who plays for that team that wins the Super Bowl, every player, every coach, even the water boy gets a ring. They're all winners, not just one. And when I take what God has given me and I use it and contribute to the whole body and you grow and we grow, I grow. There's a mutual exchange and a mutual benefit when I give to the body and we grow together. Because when we all grow, I grow, you grow. And, and so that's how it works. And so there's no need for you and I to be so so egocentric or self-centered and thinking, well, if I give this, then what's the benefit in it for me? That should not even be the question to a mature Christ follower because he already knows or she already knows that in giving and making that contribution, we all grow. So we engage it for mutual, the mutual benefit of each other. For the mutual benefit of each other and for the development of the growth of the whole body. Number four, it's empowered according to giftedness. It's interesting that he says when each part is working properly, it makes the whole body grow. It's interesting in this text, he says, and it makes each part is working properly makes the whole body grow working properly and some of your translations have the word working according to the measure working according to what measure we talked about measurements a couple of weeks ago i think but the measure here is the measure of the grace of god upon the individual because our spiritual giftedness is not based upon merit God's gift, whatever it is, and his call in your life has been endowed to you, this spiritual gift, solely by grace. So you can't walk around and say, I got a great, I can sing like Andy, man. I got a great voice. Look at me. You know, Andy can't take any pride in that voice. God gave it to him. But the idea here is, is it, it was given by grace. Grace, unmerited favor. So don't ever feel like you got the raw end of the deal or, or you didn't get as much as someone else because that wasn't God's calling in your life because with that calling, as we've already talked about, whatever that calling, some callings need greater grace. But whatever calling you have, it's all by grace. And because God gave you that calling and that giftedness by grace... It's interesting here that he said and suggests here that as we serve and as we utilize our calling, that we should make sure that it is God who is empowering us for the call. We are to serve in, por in proportion to our giftedness. In other words, if you're called to sing, don't wind up in the nursery. 
If God has, has given you the gift of leadership and you lead in worship, don't sit in the chair, be up on this platform and be useful to him. That's why you're in this body. And when you're sitting down there and you're not up here, you're not fulfilling the purpose that God has intended for your life. And we are all suffering because you're not following and fulfilling what God intended for your life. But there are some of us that God has equipped us to be in the nursery and to change those diapers that uh, sometimes don't smell like they should. It takes a special gifted person to do that. Is that job in the nursery more important than the job on the platform? The answer is obviously no. And so God has different places and he proportions the spiritual giftedness in your life so that you can serve according to the place and proportion by which he gives, but also he empowers us for that service. And it's saying here that you should never place anybody in a place of leadership or service in which they're not empowered by the grace of that spiritual gift. If your call is not to teach, don't teach. You'll bore everybody to death. I don't care. You, you can't go to seminary and learn how to, how to be a pastor. It doesn't work that way. And so there is obviously here an idea that you are empowered according to your giftedness and the grace of God will sustain you in that giftedness. Ephesians 4, 7 says, but by grace you've given each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, notice it says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We all have a work and no one should be idle in their work. No one should be idle in their work. It means that no one should feel useless in their work. I'm thankful that those people in the kitchen feed me every Wednesday. No one should not only feel idle or useless, but no one should be overworked. There should be plenty of people to fill the positions of leadership and, 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 and the ministries of this church. The sad reality is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And the reality is that Christ never intended for his church to be that way. He didn't connect you to this body so that you could be idle and, and, and have no value to the rest of the body. But none of us should be overworked. And I'm convinced that there's some of us in here that should resign from some positions of leadership because, quite frankly, we're overtaxed. You know, I think about what I do on Sundays, and I'm just going to single out Mike over here, McClellan. I can do that, right, Mike? Okay, he, he teaches a life group on Sunday morning, and he teaches systematic theology on Sunday night. He's no busier on Sundays than I am. We had an interesting thing about a young man who was interested in our church here recently. And we got to talking about the time in the office. And I believe that Monday through Thursday, we're here from 8.30 to 4.30, and on Friday, we're here till noon. And I try to make my work week a 40-hour week just like yours. Because Sunday is not a work day for me. Let me say that again. Sunday is not a work day for me. I don't take off Monday or Tuesday because I work on Sunday. You know what? So does Mike work Monday through Friday. And he comes up here on Sunday and he serves. I believe as a called pastor, my Sunday is my day to serve. It's not what I get paid to do. It's my act of service. And we've had one young man back out of our church because he thought he should get a full day off during the week because Sunday's a work day. 
Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way before he came. I mean, we serve together on Sunday. But, I, but I, I dare say that if we're not careful, we can overload certain people with too many jobs and they won't be able to do anybody any good. Well, if I don't do it, nobody else will do it. Yeah, they will. It's amazing who God raises up. Number five, we need to exercise spiritual discernment. There's a discernment that comes along with this inclusion in the body. It says so that it builds itself up. Notice that it builds itself up. We build ourselves up. It's we're joining Christ and we, through our labors, we're building ourselves up. But how does that work? There's an environment here that is very, very instrumental, I, I might add, that, that either helps us grow or, or hurts our growth. I think it's for that reason that he begins in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Notice what he says. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Hmm. There's a certain walk that we as individuals must walk. There's a certain life that we must live. There's a certain example we must emulate who is Jesus. Because if we as individuals are not working in a, walking in a, a manner worthy of our calling, guess what? We have a, a hard, difficult fellowship. If we are not, notice it says, if we are not humble and gentle and patient and loving and united and living in the bond of peace, this will be a disruptive body and anybody that comes here won't, be, won't want to connect here. If we're a bunch of self-centered, carnal, egocentric, self-driven believers who are always angry and fussing and feuding and fighting and there's no peace, we're not going to grow. And I think there's a lot of churches today who are not growing because they, they measure up to that which I've just described. Churches that are filled with disgruntled, angry, bitter, resentful, self righteous, condescending, condemning believers who are just looking for a fight. I'm not saying that we overlook the truth. He says, speak the truth in love. And I'm not saying that, that, we, should not, that we should do that. But, but I think how we behave and how we live individually and as we come together corporately impacts the church. And it behooves us as individuals to make sure that we're walking in humility, we're walking in peace, and that we're walking in patience, and that we are gentle with each other, and we're humble, and we're loving, and there's a bond of peace here, so that Christ can then grow up his church. But not only is there an aspect about our work, but there's an aspect about our walk, uh, our work, our walk, our work. In Ephesians 4, 7, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a work that we must also all do. And we must discern what that gift is and that calling is and that placement is for us then to make the contribution that Christ wants to bring into our lives. And lastly, number six, we need to express authentic love. Authentic love. There's an expression here of not just love, but authentic love. Because, love your brother? Really? Hey, can't believe. Man. <laughs> it's a southern thing. I used to pastor in South Carolina, and 
smile at you and tap you on the back and see you turn around, you know. Or maybe you've had pastor for lunch sometime in the past. It's important that we're a loving church. He says, in love. In love. He says, so that it builds us up. How? What's the internal component that, that rises up and builds itself? In love. And when we come and we love and we are loved in the body of Christ and we come together to Manu Baptist Church, I love you and you love me and I know that. And there's nothing, this, this agape love, this this unconditional, unending, unequal love. There's nothing that you can do that could hinder or hurt or, or providentially make me not love you because I'm going to love you. Now, you may act, you know, a little bit unloving from time to time, but that's okay. Right, Robert? What I thought. But I'm going to love you anyway. I'm compelled to love you and to forgive when I've been offended and to live with those that God has grafted me together with in the bond of peace notice in ephesians chapter 1 verse 16 he says for this reason because i have heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward some of the saints know what he said for your love for the people that you really like and the people you don't like you you know what he said for all the saints to love all of them lord all of them. Well, you don't know what they did. Really. And Jesus looks back at you and said, well, how about what you did to me? Oh, well, that's a different thing, Lord. You know, I mean, he said, no. Ephesians 5 says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Back in the old days, there was a, a man in the community that was uh, sort of not a very clean man. He was a dirty man, somewhat rather considered by many homeless while he did have a home and he you know stinky breath and dirty clothes and all that and and uh he went to the county seat first baptist church one day and sat in the pew and felt compelled by god to join the church and he walked down the aisle and shook the pastor's hand and said i'd like to unite with this church and join this church and when he was presented to the church back in those days some of you remember the church voted they affirmed to receive them you remember those days we don't do that anymore. That's kind of a, I never could figure out why. No, I've, I'd never been in a place where anybody had been voted down, so we just, over the years, quit doing that. But anyway, in this particular church, when they presented him, the congregation voted to reject his membership. The next Sunday, the man came back, sat in the back of the pew, and at the invitation, walked down the front, proceeded to join the church, Thought maybe there had been some change of heart, but they also voted him down again a second time the following Sunday. During that week, he was out, you know, doing his usual run around through town in the streets. He was kind of a, you know, kind of a streetwalker type dude. And the pastor saw him and stopped and talked to him and said, you know, I'm really sorry that, uh, you know, this, this happened to you, you know, and, I, you know, tried to smooth it over. It's a small community. 
And um, the town started talking. So the following Sunday, the guy thought, maybe the pastor of the church have had a change of heart, walked down, joined, tried to join, and they again a third time voted him down. Well, during the week, the chairman of deacons, Brother David, I was in the grocery store and came across the guy, and he said, sir, he said, I hate to tell you this, but I'm so sorry that our church voted you down three times. He said, ah, don't worry about it, sir. It, it's okay. He said, why, it's, why is it okay? He said, well, the Lord and I have been talking, and the Lord told me not to worry about it. He said, really? He said, yeah. Well, what else did the Lord say? He said, well, the Lord told me not to worry about it because the church has been trying, the Lord has been trying to join that church for years and hasn't been able to get in. Wherever the Lord is, there's love, there's peace, and there's not only room for everybody, but there's room for everybody to become a part of what God wants to do through us as a whole. God has brought us together. God has brought us together for a reason, and you're not here by accident. You're here by his sovereign, divine plan. We have a choice to make. And the choice is, will we join him in the building program that he wants to bring to our church? It's not about a building, but it's about a building spiritually. It's not about a financial campaign. It's not about a numerical campaign. It's not about a building campaign. It's about a spiritual campaign. Where he is wanting us to grow spiritually. Not just individually, but as a whole, as the community of faith called Emmanuel Baptist Church. Will you respond to Christ's invitation to join him in building his church? Let's pray.